0: In our previous episode called uh, Killers Can Run But They Can't Hide From Their Forensic Genealogy, we talked about a cutting-edge lab in Houston, Texas, that is solving cold cases that have been cold for up to 50 years. Today, we're going to talk about mitochondrial DNA. We're going to go back in time. Hi, I'm Robert Riggs, the investigative reporter with True Crime Reporter, here with former U.S. prosecutor Bill Johnston, we're going to talk about one of Bill's old cases. Now, to give you a little uh, science lesson, mitochondrial DNA is handed down from mother to child. So it can only tell you about your maternal ancestors. It's not going to tell you anything about your male ancestors. They call it maternal inheritance. It's what allows genetic testing sites like 23 and me to trace our maternal ancestors. So you inherited, once again, The mitochondrial DNA from your mother who inherited hers from her mother and so forth and so forth. So, Bill, let's talk about your case because it was the first in the country to use mitochondrial DNA. Walk us through the crime, the case, and then how you use this.
1: The case involved Darren Anthony Law, who was a very violent criminal from Waco, Texas, and it involved an elderly couple that parked in the handicapped spot outside the J.C. Penney at the mall in Waco, Texas. They uh, just had a simple return or a little purchase. The elderly gentleman stayed in the car. The wife went in, did her transaction, and as she came out and got in the car, someone got in with them. And this person had a pistol, uh, tried to get the car, you know, going, and the older gentleman sort of fought him. He pistol-whipped him. He hit him, and the guy just was tough, the old, older man, and he just was not going to give up. And unfortunately, then Darren Law shot him. He shot him in the femur, in the upper leg. <clears throat> and he got the car. He had them in it. He drove a certain distance away. And eventually abandoned the car, abandoned the people, uh, the husband and wife, like I said, they were they were fairly elderly. And unfortunately, the man later died. Uh, the gentleman later died. So could anyone his... identify the guy or did he have a hood or a mask or anything? So on this occasion, he did not have a hood or mask. The the police developed law as a suspect. Of course the gentleman has died, so his has no identification there in terms of the suspect. The woman I believe, identified law from a photo lineup. And I think it was a good identification, but we were a little worried about her age and about her, you know, how that would go. So step back a moment. The night before this elderly couple was carjacked, um, there were two guys from out of town uh, who, I think construction workers or something, who stayed at a hotel, fairly nice, part of Waco down near Baylor, Uh, and they uh, went to get uh, a hamburger, like at Wendy's or someplace, right next to it. As they're walking back to the hotel, this guy comes out of nowhere. He has a stocking cap on, not over his face, but over his head. He produces a, I think it was a 9mm or forty-five pistol. He points it right at them. He robs them of their wallets, and he runs off. And as he ran off, his stocking cap flew off his head and a hundred yards away, let's say, and the police did a nice job of tracking back. And once they got the call, they saw his cap and the guy said, yeah, that looks like the cap he was wearing. And so now we have two events within 12 or 14 hours, similar, similar events with a very similar firearm. Uh, The description of the firearm was exact. And so that police department it knows a lot of the real bad guys around, and and uh, it sounded like law. They they thought it was this guy law, and so uh, we started knitting the cases together. Now the the carjacking case, there was a new federal law at the time. Carjacking was a federal offense, and so it allowed us to take a lot of these really violent criminals, which I really enjoyed doing, and send them to federal prison where they'd serve all their sentences, not get out quickly like the state system allowed. But I wanted to build the best case, and so the knit cap that the guy was wearing in the robbery of the two men that had been sent to a lab and then someone said well let's the fbi helped me work on the uh, carjacking case they had jurisdiction over that said let's send it to our lab so they sent it to the lab in washington and at some point thereafter this was after i'd indicted the case but well before trial I had a call from a guy named Mark Wilson. Now Mark Wilson's a real neat guy. Mark Wilson's sort of the godfather of the DNA lab with the FBI. Uh, he was highly respected. He was a scientist. And he really was uh, out there on the edge of what was being done with DNA. And so he had a funny question. He said, I have met you, you know, Mr. Johnston, uh, but I understand you're working this case and this is an important part of it. Would you be interested in doing something new? And I said, well, course. What is it? And he said, well, we did find a few hairs in this cap. There's no root. I was like, okay. And I I had very little clue about DNA and its use and how they get it. And he said, but uh, we're developing a database. We're developing some techniques to use mitochondrial DNA. He said, hair without a root, you're not going to find nuclear DNA. And I learned later that scientists that work on this sort of stuff they the DNA is normally held in the nucleus of the cell they put a substance in the uh, mix and it breaks down the cell wall and they flush the DNA from the nu- nucleus and they replicate it and they can well he said we can do the same thing with the mitochondria and I remembered from from biology well that's the energy, little energy producing yes. little engine of the cell and he said we can break that down we can flush that and we've learned how to do that but we get this mitochondrial DNA. But he said, problem is I've never had a case on it. We, we have the data. We know it works. But you might face a situation where the judge doesn't allow it because it's too new. And I said, let's try. And so he did the work. He said, based on our data so far, this is your guy. This is this Darren Law guy. This is from what we can gather based on the mitochondrial. And so I told the defense attorney, Here's what we have. I didn't make a big deal out of it one way or another. I just said, we're going to intend to use this. He looked at the science. The defense attorney didn't really have a problem with it. I mean, he, he may have raised a question. The federal judge heard the expert's testimony. And he was like, science. Hey, let's do it. So we tried the case to a jury and put on the evidence that I described, and the jury convicted law. Now, I had gone a month before to the Justice Department for a hearing on whether or not we could get the death penalty on Darren Law. Darren Law had a very violent history. Very, he, was a, he was chronically a violent criminal. And I wanted to get the death penalty because he killed this man during a robbery. Um, and I was not, not allowed. The Department of Justice was very cautious at that time about death penalty. So we tried the case anyway. We got a mandatory life, federal life sentence, which means you know real life. And so that's how we did it. But I learned a lot about, from Mark Wilson, about not just the science of it, but about also how to, how to work with something new, but, but don't be afraid of it.
0: And that's how it went. So for our listeners, I want to explain why you didn't turn it over to the state prosecutor for a death penalty case or capital murder. And it, that was the time period where people were getting out pretty short Sentences in Texas. They'd be sentenced for a long sentence, but then this was a revolving door prison system. You'd look up a few years later, whoops, they're
1: out. That's right. You know, we in the state system, they were not looking to do capital cases unless they were very notorious. Uh, It's very expensive for them to do. And were it not to be capital, and the gentleman died a few days later, that wasn't a problem, but it took a little bit away from the did he intend to kill him or just injure him because he shot him in the leg? The state didn't, was not really interested in the case. And so I took it federally and was glad to, but like you said, I knew that a life sentence federally meant they would never get out, not it would turn into a 15-year sentence like state.
0: And so did you have to take the DNA swab
1: from him to match the uh, yes
0: inheritance from his mother?
1: Yes, we wrote, a, we wrote a search warrant to have his mouth swabbed and they did so. And I don't recall what else they did in furtherance of that. But uh, that was all provided to the FBI laboratory, and the DNA shop there was like, yep, we have all we need, let's do the tests, and it came out very, very favorably.
0: All right, in a moment, I want to pick this back up and talk to you about the presentation of this kind of new technology and science to a jury. Okay. I'm talking with a former U S prosecutor, Bill Johnston here with the true crime reporter podcast about how he used mitochondrial DNA in a case. And it was a groundbreaking. Now we kind of take DNA for, for granted, but what was the challenge and what would be even the challenge today of getting a jury to understand that, you know, this, this is really important
1: evidence. That's a great question. So to me, the step be behind that is actually the judge. So first the judge. Because um judges are like any other folks, some are really brilliant, some are not really brilliant, mm-hmm. some are have a scientific background, some are, you know, cowboys. They don't know anything about it and don't care to know anything about it. So you first need to convince the judge there's a there's a challenge that can be made to scientific scientific evidence called the Daubert or Daubert Daubert Challenge, and that challenge says, is the science credible? And the challenge to DNA, there have been hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands, of challenges to DNA. The science isn't valid. And then over years, the courts have said it is valid, and the court of appeals said it is valid. Supreme Court said it is valid. So with mitochondrial, so now we're in a new area, first step is try to convince a judge, try to be open with the judge about it have him understand it. In our case, I had a federal judge who was very bright, who was interested in science, mm-hmm. interested in everything. And he listened to it. It was, it just made sense. And it was an extension of DNA. The DNA wasn't, you know, this wasn't the first DNA case. It was just the yes. first federal mitochondrial DNA case. So he got that. So once you get the judge on board, then he's not a skeptic. And that, that's helpful with the jury. And then with the jury again, The jurors are a mixed bag of, in in central Texas, for instance, we have ranchers, we have bankers, we have military from Fort Hood, we have, uh, you know, stay-at-home moms and dads. So you'll have a good mix of it. So you don't want to offend a jury by talking down to them. Right about it, you know, you don't want to say that a cell is a, you know, <laughs> you yeah. don't want to The nucleus a,
0: of the cell. Yeah, and... you don't
1: want to be a seventh grade, you know, biology teacher, but you do want to start at a point where, at a level where most all of them get it, and those that don't can ask the others. Um, and so that's part of it, not dumbing it down too much, but not being a smart aleck either and acting like they know everything. And that, that's accomplished through, in, in my experience, talking to your expert witness ahead of time. And most of them are really great. Most of the, particularly the federal labs, yes, they've done it many, many times. For instance, the first case I ever had where handwriting was an issue, I had a guy named Gregory Floyd. And Gregory Floyd was sometimes said, uh, Referred to as the greatest handwriting guy in the world, he was Secret Service's top guy, and he was he testified all over the world. But one of the reasons he was so great—I'm just talking about experts mm-hmm, and juries mm-hmm. here—is that when you got Gregory Floyd in front of a jury, and you and I asked the question in a handwriting case, it happened to be a drug case where the drug, the methamphetamine formula was handwritten. So I had Secret Service come down and talk about this, try to put it to the uh, the chemist. So. Gregory Floyd asked, turned to the judge after I asked a question, something like, tell us how one can be identified based on their handwriting. Simple question. And Gregory Floyd said, Your Honor, may I step down in front of the jurors? Well, sure. And so he hopped down, got right in front of the jurors, and he had a little uh, board. And the board had what looks like what we all saw in first and second grade, which was the numeral and letter chart that went around the top of the room where you saw how to make an a and a b and a c and a d mm-hmm, a big mm-hmm. a, a little a. yeah and he had something that looked a bit like that and he said to the jurors now when we're all at first in school we talk just like yeah when we're first in school we learn to write by looking at an example and he talked about that then he said but over time we all stray from the example and we, our handwriting looks different. And here's how the different ways it looks different. And he, the jurors just ate it up, just perfectly understood how handwriting becomes unique over time. It just does. So similarly, this federal DNA lab guy, he was used to it. He knew how to talk to jurors. So he hopped down and he explained, he explained about the cell and the DNA and how, the science of it. And, and, you know, again, not talking down to the jurors, but just explanatory. And he was excellent. And so I think that the way to have a jury understand these sorts of things is not to presume too much as if they know it all Mm -hmm. and not to also talk down to them. And And if you work with your witness ahead of time for 10 minutes or five hours, depending on what they need, they'll do it. They'll get it. But that's how that's a long answer to say. I think that's how we did it.
0: What was the reaction of the killer when he suddenly realized that, uh, the genes from his mother were nailing him for the crime. He
1: kn- knew pretty quickly in that case he was in really big trouble because we had tied the two cases together. First of all, so we had two separate acts, 10 miles apart, 12 hours apart. We had him. And so I think he knew quickly that we were merging two really bad acts together and the DNA took it away from where they could question the witness. Oh, ma'am, you don't really, you was traumatic. You don't recall, you don't have a good identification of this guy to a scientist saying this dude sitting there is the guy. So he didn't like it Mm -hmm. and he still doesn't like it and he's in federal prison still.
0: Well, you know, it was in the uh, late nineties, the FBI established CODIS and that's the database of DNA with 20 markers. And this is a database. that's. Taken from uh, certain types of criminals convicted. It depends on the states. I think they do all sexual crimes across the country, not all murderers, not others. Did you have any other cases where CODIS
1: made the difference? The DNA, it, it's an exact match. I did have some cases that ended up pleading guilty where the DNA was so certain that the defendant just hadn't, you know, the. His lawyer said, dude, plead guilty, get it over with. Uh, but I didn't have any, eh, I don't recall any jury trials because it was just, DNA evidence got to the point and has gotten to the point, if it's done properly by a good lab, the samples are clean, you know, it's all done properly. Defense attorneys really don't know what to do with it. It's very hard to defend.
0: It's just indisputable.
1: It's, it's, you. it's virtually yeah. indisputable.
0: Now, of course, we've seen in these cold cases that These killers and sex offenders were not in the database. They'd never been caught. And so now we have this new thing being pioneered here in Texas by Othram of, you know, forensic DNA genealogy where they are, they get, you know, there's 20 markers of a DNA sample in CODIS. And they have hundreds of thousands so they can look at the the family tree and they're doing that. They're putting into the genealogy base where people are uploading, you know, the solvent cases. Left and right, it, it it made me wonder how many people have gotten away with murder. There's a quarter, of a, a conservative estimate of a quarter of a million cold cases in this country. I think that
1: at some point they're going to clear so many of those cases that it's going to change the game in the cold case world. Not everybody, of course, leaves DNA at a crime scene, and a, a bit of a problem with really old stuff is that the ability carefulness mm-hmm. of police in at the yeah. crime scene yes that's gotten much better right um but it's but it's still not like on the television shows where everything you know these the people in white suits come in there's a lot of police work i wouldn't say bad there is some bad police work but there's a lot of careless police work and 30 years ago there definitely was a lot of careless police work so you if your samples could be contaminated everything's in doubt now but even that being said, particularly in larger jurisdictions where the detectives are really good, L.A., New York, right. San Francisco, uh, I think Dallas, uh, they're, they're going to solve so many cases with, with DNA moving forward that it will, I think, change the game in that cold case world.
0: Well, you know, you mentioned careless police work, and that certainly happens today in these small departments where they're not trained. You know, the first thing I ought to do is pick up the phone and call the Texas Rangers, you know, to get their forensics people in. But, you know, the other thing, if we go back in time, they just didn't know. And this really hit me when we were working on our. Television show Freed to Kill about serial killer Kenneth McDuff, and you led the manhunt for him and later prosecuted the corrupt officials behind his parole. But I got in the newspaper archives of the Fort Worth Star Telegram, and back at the crime scene where he had murdered three teenagers, all these detectives, even the sheriff himself, they're tromping around in the middle of it. I mean, they are all around, even the Even the newspaper people are up, you know, right on the, on the scene. There's no, nothing's roped off. There's no, and the other thing that struck me is that, you know, in those days they took the bodies away in an ambulance and those attendants aren't wearing any protective clothes. They don't even have on gloves, you know, they're, they're picking up the bodies with their bare hands.
1: And I, I, it just, it stunned me of what we know today. and people. As a general rule, the people who arrive at crime scenes know to be careful. As you said, there's a lot of rural areas, rural areas and small towns that just don't have the, haven't had enough murders or they're so gullible or so ignorant. You and I did a, a case, uh, talked about a case, I mean, Matt Baker, the preacher, Baptist preacher that murdered his wife, that crime scene was. Was handled so poorly. It was virtually not a non-existent crime scene. They didn't. They took a few snapshots. Didn't gather evidence. They didn't handle it properly. There was another case in that same jurisdiction, Hewitt, Texas, which is near Waco, Texas, yes. where there was a murder still unsolved, uh, involving a husband who was brutally knifed to death, and the police before too much time had passed in the in the uh, after the murder, let the Sunday school class of the husband and wife uh, come cl- come clean up the apartment. Oh my God! And and they mi- they police missed evidence because they were inexperienced, they were lazy, and you know the the suspect at the time there was connection allegedly to the wife. So you know you, you don't want someone in this crime scene, but it does happen. It has happened. And you're right. You know, in the old days, gosh, they just stomp around, had no clue. But it's that poor work still goes on. Yeah, and you know, I I watch CSI, and
0: I sometimes I just chuckle and shake my head. Like, folks, it doesn't happen this way at all. And departments are strapped for money; they don't have the resources to do this. They can't, you know,
1: you can't have a whole team just focused on one and only one case alone. And you mentioned, you know, having a the what a rural uh, crime scene mm-hmm. should. Should area should do, you know, if you have sheriff's office or small police department, you should call the Texas Rangers. They'll get the state police lab in and all of that. Well, in the cases we mentioned, the Baptist Preacher case and that one I just talked about, about that knifing, they they didn't want the Rangers in. You know, they, they they didn't. The police department was so they got, insecure.
0: They got their egos in it.
1: Oh, yeah. And that happens. They, it happen, I have another case in West Texas that I've looked at recently where they just Aren't looking to have the rangers involved because they don't want someone knowing how bad they are and they don't want someone else to get credit for solving it. That happens all the time, too. So,
0: so you know, we've seen the cases of abductions where family members became the advocates and really pressed in the news to for the detectives to get out there and beat the bushes. Do you have any advice if, you know, for crime victims' families and it was a small department and you don't feel like it, what do you do? Can, can they pick up and call the Texas Rangers themselves or some
1: other or criminal organization to get involved? Yes, I, mean, we, I do this sort of work in my law office. Uh, we actually do private, for lack of a better term, private investigations, private prosecutions of these cases because... Sometimes there's no one else to do it and you can't get the police to do anything. And what we have done is we have gotten some great, you know, forensic people Mm -hmm. try to work it sort of from a distance. It's hard, much harder to do privately, but try to work it from a distance. And then once we gather enough evidence, we try to turn it over to the ranger service or the local police or the district attorney. But there's not, there's not a lot of places to go. So the problem is, yeah, if you have a, uh, victim's family and they don't, aren't satisfied, if they can't go through that, that agency, they can try to go to the state police, wherever they may be, or the federal law enforcement, if there's a way to do that, or try to get someone to privately look into it. But it's, it's tough because you get stonewalled and sometimes they just never get answers. And so
0: when they do reach out to another agency, what's the best way? I'm, I'm thinking they need to have something that's pretty well written and explains things, too, so that after they talk to them, they have something to leave that will drive home the point of what's wrong.
1: That's right. Yeah, something something that's articulate, that doesn't just sound like a mourning or mad family right? because they hear a lot of that. But you want something that you really want something. That's what we try to do when we privately look into these things. Uh, we've tried to have enough facts so that when you leave it with someone, they're almost compelled to do something with it and they, and they might even get in trouble. There Mm -hmm. you go. Might even get in trouble if they don't, because there are agencies, unfortunately, that there, there there's so many good ones. I'm not, not, uh, trying to act like they're most of them aren't great. Most of them are, they're very good, but those that aren't very good are very lazy Mm Mm-hmm you almost have to put them in a situation of re- recognizing that they're gonna look really bad if this doesn't get picked up, they don't do something.
0: And you know, we've seen cases where it's a good agency, but all, not all the detectives are top flight. There'll be some detectives that are incredible, and God forbid your family member's case got assigned to one of the incompetents who should have been fired years ago and hasn't
1: been. Right, an, an insecure know-it-all. Yes. Detective is the worst because they're going to act like they have all the answers. In fact, deep down inside, they don't have a clue what they're doing and they won't never admit it to anyone. That's the worst. But there's so many good ones. Hopefully and their yeah. sergeants are good or the lieutenants right. are good. So, yeah. Well, in, in some of those, they they'll talk down to the family. That's right. And that's kind of the giveaway right there. That's right. Yeah. If they're not confident, confident enough to just be open about what they have and what they're trying to do, mm-hmm. you got a problem.
0: What do you see? Even more big changes coming with this with the forensic genealogy, you know, because they do they look at they look at databases where the police have the consent to do it. It's not every one of them does it, but uh, I I would encourage people to do it. You never know how there may be somebody back way back in your family tree that you know needs to face
1: justice. You know, the work you did in connection with that lab in the Houston, north of Houston, I think that is where it's headed. And again, you have to keep the credibility. You have, They have to not move so quickly forward that people question, oh, well, you're too far out there. But I think your, your show um, and their, what they had to say about it is probably the next step, if not the future of, of forensics. You know, what struck me about
0: that, husband and wife couple that started all of this and oh my i mean they are phds in molecular biology there's something but they decided david middleman decided to build a lab from the ground up strictly focused on cold cases and he's got the most powerful sequencing hmm. computer in the world for running these things because they're looking at golly millions of points of data that you know nor and what i didn't also realize is that kind of the root the off-the-shelf dna testing these days is kind of just that it's kind of generic whereas this thing is really built for specificity for law enforcement and
1: crime there are some uh, states and some regional dna offices that like you said they're sort of stock but they're not mm-hmm. they're not out there and yet we have to be so careful not to undermine the credibility of DNA with poor work. Yes. That's why that, the lab you're talking about is so great. So.
0: Yes, because in some of these cases, there had been DNA testing, but it was strictly the the DNA testing for the FBI's CODIS. Person didn't have a record. Case hits cold. And, you know, Bill, here's the other thing that really struck has struck me about looking at these cold cases, because I'm looking at some that we'll do about the Texas Rangers that they're doing. When you look at these killers. They've gotten away with murder for years, but one of the common things I'm seeing is that they have a whole nother life. They're married, they have children, they have families, they're parts of the community, and they've gotten away, they've gotten away with it. And they've gotten away with multiple
1: murders, this double life. Right. Yes. Yeah, so, some of the cases they've cracked in California, the people have moved on, quit, maybe quit killing even. Mm-hmm. And they moved on and they have this normal appearance and it's crazy. But yeah, I think that's DNA's going to crack into a lot of old bones. Did you
0: ever see in, in your work this
1: Dr. Jekyll, Mr. Hyde uh, personality? Oh, definitely. Definitely. In some early, some of the early big drug cases I did that involved killers, there, some of the people, you would have people coming to court, preachers coming to court talk about how great yes. the person was. Yeah. What a wonderful saintly person they were, but they had this dark side that was just under the velvet and they, uh, they had both lives, but yes, absolutely.
0: And I, I've covered cases that way where yes, the preacher, the best friends, they come in and it, uh, you know, he's, he's a good man and all, all of this. And, uh, I'm sitting there knowing really the facts, the horrible facts of the case. And, you just kind of wonder in the, what in the world is going on in the offender's mind
1: that he's been able to fool his family, his spouse, his his minister. I had a case. I'm trying to think which one it was. I don't think it was Darren Law, the one we talked about, but it was, it may have been, but it was a case where murder had taken place, maybe may in one of the bombing cases, yes. I don't remember. And I remember I trying to think in my final argument, gosh, what can I say? That, and I found a, An Old Testament Bible verse that said something like, who can know the darkness of the heart of man? Only God can know. Something like that. Mm -hmm. But it's so applicable to what you're talking about. There's a darkness that exists in people, or particularly some people, that no one knows about. Well, I really
0: kind of think that darkness is uh, what drove both of us in our careers to expose the darkness and i think on our listeners they are fascinated by the darkness of wondering is there somebody uh in line with me at the convenience store grocery store gas station or in my bowling league you know so hey in closing i there's one thing i did want to note uh, about the lab that we did in houston this cutting i mean it's cutting edge cutting edge technology they even have a classroom there where once a week they've got law enforcement coming in from around the country to learn, where they're teaching this. But you and I both have a lot of experience with the Texas Rangers. You used them in your investigations. I've covered them. And they said that of all these agencies, it is the Texas Rangers that were there first wanting to use the technology, wanting to learn about the technology, uh, how open they are, and how dogged they are in the pursuit of these cold cases.
1: I just think that day in, day out in Texas, particularly in the rural areas, but also in cities, um, the folks that can really work a homicide case, that's the Rangers
0: in my book. The more I look into their cases and talk to them, there's something about the person. These are unique men and women
1: of the – they just don't let go. They don't. Yeah. And I think they recruit them looking for that. And they're not all that way, but boy, there are a bunch of them.
0: All right. Well, that's going to wrap this up, but I hope our listeners that you've learned something more about DNA that we've educated you while we always try to do that. And of course, if you have any questions or, you know, want something uh, to be looked at, or maybe you need Bill's help, uh, it's, fan at truecrimereporter.com. It's fan at truecrimereporter.com. And be sure to sign up for our email list. We're going to start putting out more information and kind of uh, updates on the craziest crimes of the week. So thanks for listening. We want to be your favorite true crime podcast. So please recommend us to your friends and leave a review wherever you listen. If you want to receive updates and bonus interviews, join our true crime community at truecrimereporter.com. If you have suggestions or know of a case that we should look into, email us at fan at truecrimereporter.com. This podcast is a trademarked and copyrighted news organization based in Dallas, Texas. You can read more about our news team at truecrimereporter.com. Thanks for listening to our Journey into Darkness.